Hi, and welcome to Decisions Over Coffee, the podcast series that discusses how we can de-bias investment decision-making through analytics and behavioral science. I'm Magdalena Smith, and my company, Behavior Lab, works with businesses to remove biases from their investment processes. Join me for coffee and a chat with people making key decisions, from asset managers to board directors. This episode, I'm having a coffee with Daniel Crosby, the Chief Behaviour Officer at Brinker Capital and the author of an absolutely amazing book that I've just read, which is called Behavioural Investors. Daniel is on the end of a phone in Philadelphia. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Decisions Over Coffee. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure on our behalf. So, first things first, are you possibly having a coffee? So I'm going to blow your mind right now. I have never <laughs> in my life had a cup of coffee. Oh my, I, you did actually blow my mind. And the reason for that being? I have never in my life had a cup of coffee. I don't drink coffee. I actually, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and this is embarrassing. Diet Coke is my preferred source of caffeine. So I drink Diet Coke every morning and I'm probably killing myself doing it. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. Now I can actually admit that I have the same weakness as you do. I've been really, really good. I've cut down the consumption because I used to drink 10 Diet Cokes a day. <laughs> and I'm now Ten. down to two or three. So I can, I can totally, I can feel, <laughs> I can feel the desire. I'm good for about four a day, so I'm not quite, 10 is impressive. My hat is off to you. <laughs> now I'm doing good. I am cutting down. Let's jump from the caffeine, which I've had lots of today, and go straight into the concept of decision-making biases. I would love if we could start off by, for example, discussing a little bit about your book and your views as to how decision-making biases affect investors and why it's important that they deal with these biases. In The Behavioral Investor, there's really sort of three major parts to it. I begin in the first part talking about some of the psychological, physiological, and sociological impediments to good investment decision-making and, you know, sort of spoiler alert, everything from your brain to your body to the societies in which we live conspire to make you bad at the things we're talking about. And then I talk about four specific behavioral biases that emerge as a result of these environmental impediments. And then I kind of talk about what to do about it, what's the so what of it in part three. But yeah, the the four behavioral biases that I identify, uh, what I did is I took this universe of behavioral bias, which as you know, is quite large. There's well into the hundreds of different cognitive errors and behavioral biases that we've identified at this point. But if you look at what underpins those, I think it's a it's a much smaller number, and you can account for a lot of the uh, the variance in human behavior with a much smaller number. So I took that universe of uh, investor misbehavior and tried to distill it down into just like a handful of, of primary biases. So I walked away with four. Uh, the first of these is ego or, or overconfidence and sort of related biases. The second is emotion. Uh, the third is attention, and the fourth is conservatism. So those were sort of my big four because I feel like getting a workable universe of bias is a prerequisite to preventing it. No, I think we have the very same philosophy in the sense of breaking it down to just a few groups and then trying not to focus on too many things at the same time. Um, In your experience, which one of these 
is the greatest offender. I think of overconfidence as the, the sort of the mother of all bias because this egotism, this overconfidence is the bias that enables every other bias. I mean, if we were appropriately humble and circumspect about our own limitations, I think a lot of the others would disappear. Uh, but unfortunately, as, I, as I'm sure you see in your own work, a lot of people don't use behavioral finance as a mirror, you know, the way that I think you should mm. use it to look in the mirror and say, you know, what am I doing wrong? But instead, they use it as a lens or a window to view other people and to laugh at other people and make jokes about how silly investors are or their clients are. Uh, but I think the optimal use of the sorts of work that you and I do is to turn this bright light of introspection back in on ourselves and to sort of think about how we make errors. And so, yeah, I think overconfidence is the one that enables and emboldens all of the others. So if I had to pick just one, that's the, that's the one I'm going with. What you mentioned before was this concept of trying to use rule-based methodologies or systems and, or implementations into the process to be able to reduce some of these biases. What would you say to the investors that still feel that a lot of their work has to do with judgment or a concept of investment being both a mixture of science and art? I think that that has intuitive appeal that evaporates when you read the research. <laughs> uh, and so that's a romantic vision. There's a, you know, sort of pro-human argument for feeling that way. It elevates the human mind and the human psyche to say, look, you, you, you can't codify this, you can't automate it. But unfortunately, there's just not what we read in the literature. So there's a meta-analysis of 200 studies on automated decision-making versus human discretion, and it found that 94% of the time, human discretion is met or exceeded by following simple rules. And this cuts across context. I mean, this looks at everything from trying to predict the future of the stock market to try and predict prison recidivism to trying to diagnose illness. So it's, it's romantic to think about the human mind and, and the human intuition that way, but it's just not very consistent with the reality. And in fact, the stock market is troubling, and, you know, investing generally is troubling for a couple of reasons. If you're going to have intuition about something, you need to have quick feedback. Intuition exists, like, you know, studies have shown that intuition exists for scenarios in which are often repeated and which we get good feedback, yeah. right? Good, quick, consistent feedback. But if you look at something like an investment decision, most people, fund managers are different, but most people are making investment decisions relatively infrequently, you know, a couple of times a year. And the feedback can take years and years. I mean, you know, depending on when you bought Amazon stock, you know, is either up a thousand percent or down 95% in the next year. So was that a good decision or a bad decision? Well, that's, that's largely dependent on your timeframes. And so things like capital markets lack the consistency and immediacy of feedback loop uh, needed for human intuition to exist in any meaningful way. There's smart people who will fight with me about that. It's a big part of why I wrote the book just to, to share some of the research around, uh, around that very specific topic. Do you see that there is value in having the combination of some form of discretionary investment making as well as using a role-based system around that? Well, I think it's good to have a human in the loop. There was an example just this week of psychological journals using a fully automated 
submission process. And the person relating the story talked about how their submission had been kicked out because it had been flagged for plagiarism. And it was through some sort of silly quirk of, of the machine that it had been flagged for plagiarism. It wasn't actually plagiarism. It was just the citations were such that it didn't pick it up, you know, this sort of thing. And any human in the loop yeah. looking at this would have said, oh, well, this is not copied verbatim. This is a, a mistake. And whoops, I think there's a place for the centaur, if you will, you know, sort of this combinatorial approach. But I think uh, most people want a human's first rule, second approach. And I think you need to invert that. I think you want to follow the rules and have the human be the sort of the, the check on that bias. And, you know, a lot of times what we see with investing is that people will come in and screw up the rules, you know, because the market can remain irrational for quite a long time. So you can come in and sort of upend your rules at just the wrong time. There's lots of great examples of this. You know, you look at the S&P 500, people think the S&P 500 is sort of uh, exist in its natural state and just as you know unearthed like a <laughs> like a like a vegetable or something but the the S&P 500 is a construct that's put together by a group of fallible humans yeah and you know they had rules back in the late 90s uh, about not adding companies that weren't profitable not adding untested companies and they broke all those rules <laughs> to yes, include they did. <laughs> Yeah, they broke, you know, they broke all those rules to include things like AOL and different hot tech companies because they were being, you know, they're being ridiculed for being sort of obsolete. And so you, you have to be careful about when to break your rules and, and make sure that you're not sort of bastardizing your, your systematic approach. So yeah, I don't mind a human in the loop, but I think it needs to be rules first and the human should just be reserved for sort of extraordinary circumstances, which happen less often, I think, than, than most people would like them to. Can you expand a little bit about on these rules and, and how they can be applied into process? I think there's a couple of things. I talk about sort of a three-part test for whether a rule is a good, uh, a good rule. So first is that it, there needs to be data that back up the rule, okay? That's intuitive enough. Most people grasp that. But that's necessary but not sufficient because, you know, I think a second condition needs to be met, which is there needs to be some philosophy behind it. There's rules like the famous data artifact that there's a 96% correlation uh, between movement in the S&P and the production of butter in Bangladesh, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, do, do you and I want to start a hedge fund tomorrow that bets solely on a single indicator? Uh, probably not because it's an artifact, right? It's a data artifact. It's the product of data mining and not anything that philosophically makes any sense. So you need data you also need a philosophy. And then the third thing I think for financial markets is you want it to have a behavioral element to it. Um, because if there's no behavior to it, it's unlikely to endure. There's all sorts of market anomalies, you know, calendar effects, rebalancing effects, all these sorts of things are discovered by academicians and they are arbitraged away as quickly as they're discovered if there's no psychological underpinning to it. Well, you look at something like the the enduring factors, like the factors that have endured over long periods of time, value, momentum, these sorts of things, they all have a psychological underpinning to them. So value investing, right? Value investing, you can know about it, you can read every book about Warren Buffett, and then when you see a stock on sale, you can still not do it 
because you go to hit buy and you get sick to your stomach because it's so beaten down. So that's something like the data exists, we know philosophically why it works, but it's so hard to execute that it persists. The aberration persists, the anomaly persists. So I think things that have stuck around, you know, momentum investing trend goes back to biblical times. Like that has been working for thousands of years. And the reason Mm. that it works is because of people's tendency to extrapolate the present into the future indefinitely. And so I would bet on people doing that for the next 2000 years too, because human behavior is more or less immutable for better or worse. If we think about these rule-based systems and and when implementing them, not from scratch, but you already have some form of decision-making process, you already have an investment philosophy, have you got any experience or have you seen any fund managers who have tried to introduce some of these and maybe share some successes and some challenges? There's two challenges, right? I think the first challenge is knowing when to upend an existing system And then, you know, if you're operating with a given philosophy, you know, you didn't land on that philosophy by accident. You landed on it because you liked it. So determining whether or not this baby of yours, you know, this philosophy that you love is a philosophy Mm. that will work into the future. And what makes it very tricky is the fact that, you know, markets can remain dislocated for a very, very long time. Corey Hofstein here in, in the U.S., did a study on basically how long you would have to to have a signal not work before you could be certain uh, that it was no good anymore. And it's decades was the answer. And, you know, most managers, because of career risk, don't have decades to sit around and sort of pine about these things. And so that's why I think this three-part test that I talked about is so important. And bringing in someone like you, you know, bringing in someone like you from the outside to vet that process and have a look at it because there's no way that you can objectively look at that from the inside out. Have you seen anybody who's been trying to implement rules or devising methodologies but actually those devising methodologies or those rules have ended up having a negative impact on the performance or negative impact on the decision-making process across other areas where the rule may not be applicable. If I think about situations I've seen where there was an effort to de-bias and that it went poorly, it's because Mm. people didn't do what you and I uh, talked about from the very outset of this conversation, which was to come up with a workable, uh, manageable universe of bias. You know, there are so many biases, and some of them seemingly run contrary to each other. You know, we have optimism bias and pessimism bias, right? You know, (laughs) we have these things that seemingly sort of offset. So I think if you don't have a workable universe, I've seen some people get into the behavioral finance literature, sort of understand this literally hundreds of biases, and then be sort of paralyzed by their process so that they're always on the lookout for one sort of small bias or another, and they become Mm -hmm. incapable of moving. So I think you need to get those big rocks in there to come up with a good enough process to help you avoid the most damning biases. Uh, and then, you know, and then go on about your day. I think if you're going to fail, you're going to fail by trying to overfit and micromanage every little thing. I support that wholeheartedly. And, and one of the things that I'd love your views on is something that we've experienced and something we often see is, is for example, when you do try to implement specific rules or when you do try to implement specific devising methodologies, say that you've identified, for example, that you have a tendency of selling too late and that 
the rule that then kicks in or that the devising methodology that is then implemented is mistakenly only implemented around the point in time when they start thinking about making selling decisions. Whereas the experience that we have is that actually those kind of things need to come at the same point at making an investment decision. So that you already thought about and you already have a rule set based and devising methodology in place to start thinking at a point of buying when and what it is that's going to cause you to sell an investment. It's interesting when I was a kid, you know, my parents would always tell me, you know, relative to peer pressure, you know, when I was an adolescent, and they're trying to keep me from making poor decisions when I'm out with my friends, <laughs> they would talk about effectively, you know, they didn't call them this, but they would be pre-commitment devices, understanding before you were in the moment, how you want to operate in the moment and already having a, a plan for that. Yeah. And so I think that's just as applicable with fund managers as it is angsty teenagers. I mean, one of the things I've found in my research is that people lose 13% of their cognitive processing power under duress, right? So at the very moment when you need to have your mental faculties about you in a heightened way, you have them in a diminished way. And so sometimes a lot of these good rules that you've learned are sort of out the door at the very most inopportune time possible. So pre-commitment devices are huge and you need to have a policy in place before the panic of a moment overrides your cognitive faculties. Yeah, that's a very similar experience and I love your analogy <laughs> in that one. One of the key things that we've seen investors do is it's very difficult to get some of these changes to stick. So even this concept, you said that you can create these rules, you can have all these processes in place, but ultimately you have to stick to these rules. Do you have any experience or, or any views as to what is necessary or what would help an investor stick to these rules over a longer period of time? I think there are three things. Again, it's always three, right? So I think there's three. Uh, there's three. three is a good number. Three is a good number. So we're going to look at the holy trinity of sticking with rules here. So I think there's three things. Uh, the first of them is education, right? You need to know about these things. You need to listen to podcasts like this and educate yourself on the fundaments of behavior in markets. So education, you know, knowing the right things to do is sort of necessary mm. but not sufficient because we know that education is a very weak predictor of, of action, of behavior. I give the example of nutrition labels here in the US. You know, in the early 90s, we started labeling all our food. So, you know, now you know exactly how much fat and sodium and calories and whatever is in every kind of packaged food you, you get. And yet, since that time, we're twice as fat, you know, we're twice as fat as a country, we're three times as morbidly obese, because people don't take that education and run with it. It's an important first step, but it's but it's not enough. So education is the, the first leg of the stool. I think the second thing you need is the right environment. Willpower is easily used up. It's not as strong as most people think. And so you need to put yourself in the right environment to have that education stick. You know, I cite a number of sort of humorous examples in my book that talks about, you know, a liquor store, talked about a liquor store and how they could titrate the inflow and outflow of alcohol, uh, depending if the weeks they played German music, they had dramatic upticks in the sale of German beer, the weeks they played French music, they had a dramatic yes. <laughs> uptick, uh, uptick in the sale of champagne. 
And yet, you know, if you ask someone leaving the liquor store, you know, why'd you buy that case of beer? They're not going to say that they were subtly influenced by environmental cues. They're going to like shrug their shoulders and go, oh, you know, I don't know. It sounded good to me. You know, the environment impacts us a, a lot more than we realize. And so whether it's turning off the cable news and the markets in turmoil special or you know, surrounding yourself with good people on your team, whatever that environment looks like, environment's important. And then the third one is, you know, perhaps a plug for your services. You need that just-in-time advice. You need someone who is going to, in a moment of panic, keep you from doing the thing, you know, this this last stopgap measure to say, when you've forgotten all the lessons of your education, when, when the environment has overwhelmed <laughs> you, you need that coach or that financial advisor or, you know, whoever they may be to keep you from that poor decision to, you know, slap the donut out of your hand in real time to make sure that you stick with those plans. And and would you would you think that somebody, for example, like a team member or somebody within your organization can very much function as that coach rather than needing to have somebody externally? I don't think that they can typically. And I know certain asset managers have done things that that sound good on paper, like appointing a devil's advocate mm-hmm. and and that sounds good. But but that devil's advocate, you know, in many cases is going to have a partner and children and employment risk and, (laughs) you know, politics and all (laughs) sorts of considerations that make it difficult for them to truly advocate for what's right or to truly sort of advocate for the other side. So you have to be really, really unflinchingly honest with yourself about the, the political Uh, limitations of asking someone on your team to really, really bust your chops. Like, it's just not an easy thing to do. And what about the individual monitoring themselves or the team monitoring themselves in the sense of being able to go back and look at some of the decisions that they've made and ensure, for example, that they have applied the rules that they have committed to. I'm more optimistic about a team's ability to hold themselves accountable than I am about any individuals. Uh, You know, there was an interesting study that came out a few years ago that asked people to take a personality test uh, and then asked their coworkers to take a personality test, uh, sort of, you know, (laughs) I've done this, I've done this. Yeah, so you get it, right? And, And what they found was that, you know, effectively your office mates know you better than you know yourself. Because all of us view our own behavior through the lens of the fundamental attribution error and, you know, giving ourselves too much credit, being overconfident, being, you know, sort of overly generous about our motives and sort of blind to our flaws. And so there's real value in feedback if it's honest and if it's coming from the outside, because each of us is sort of limited in our ability to see ourselves, which is sort of a weird thing, but it's a real thing. So for those investors that that have joined us today and are listening to you and me speak, what would be the most two or three most important tips you'd give them? You know, I'd say the first thing that I would do is go read 10 books on the subject, right? Go seek out 10 books on the subject that have been well-reviewed and well-received and educate yourself. You're going to start to get a lot of overlap about the 10th book. You can get 98% of the way there with 10 books. And then, you know, people like me and you are the gluttons for punishment who are on the 200th book trying to get that last 2%, you know, (laughs) trying to get that last 2% of knowledge. But you know, you can get a long way reading, reading the right two handfuls of books. So educate yourself first. 
You know, the second thing I would say is look around your environment. For investors, you know, the environment could be the portfolio, could be your office, it could be the people you work with, could be, you know, the things you're putting in your head, the shows you're watching on TV. Environmental contributors are going to be a lot more predictive of how you act than what you believe in. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that their willpower is that weak. And yet every bit of research in the world backs it up. And then the third thing is I would say, you know, hire a coach, hire someone if you're on a budget, if it's a team member or or a mentor or someone like that, or if it's more of a professional to get someone who is unafraid to speak truth to you uh, and to keep you from making that that critical error uh, at just the wrong time. Those would be my sort of three pieces of advice. That sounds like great advice. Is there anything you feel that I should have asked and that we should be discussing further that we haven't already brought up? I mean, I feel like I should have been ridiculed a little bit more for being, you know, 40 years old and never having had a cup of coffee. I think that's perhaps your... (laughs) (laughs) I think that's your only failing. I'm not sure if I can ridicule that, unfortunately, based on my, my own preferences. So, Daniel, based on what we've just discussed and based on biases and this concept of having knowledge and yet that not changing your behavior, how does that apply to your Diet Coke addiction? <laughs> so it's, it's a great question. And there's actually something that I have exhibited when my wife has sent me articles on how I'm going to die of, you know, aspartame poisoning. <laughs> And we, we saw there was research done on people who were against vaccinations. And uh, people who were against vaccinations were shown data that show that it's good to vaccinate your children. And after they received this data, they surveyed them on their opinions and they had doubled down. They had doubled down on their previous opinions. And every time someone sends me an article on how bad Diet Coke is for you, I drink another two <laughs> Diet Cokes that day. <laughs> just to give them the finger. There's this profound impulse in human nature to not have our freedom limited. And, you know, we have a very strong human impulse when someone tells us, hey, like, you can't do that, to say, get lost, I'll do what I want. And so I think it's it's important for people who are in our shoes to lead with empathy and understanding and questioning. Because one of the things that I have observed is that there is really no such thing as an irrational behavior. You know, I started, um, I started my career as a clinician. I, I trained to be a clinical psychologist and was just terrible at it, so I ended up not doing it. Um, but, but, you know, early in my clinical work, I found uh, that, you know, uh, nobody, people would come in, right? People would come in and they would tell me what they've been up to or what they were struggling with, and I would go, you know, in some cases, like, wow, that is crazy. Like, what are they doing? And how could they be so self-sabotaging? But when someone told me enough of their story, their behavior always made <laughs> sense. So I think the things to remember are this. There's maladaptive behavior for sure. There's bad decisions and drinking four Diet Cokes a day is one of them. But people don't change because it's the wrong thing to do. People change because they feel understood, they feel empathized with, and only after they feel understood and empathized with can you have any hope of, of making sort of a, a behavioral intervention that sticks. So I'm going to ask everyone listening to stop sending me articles about Diet Coke and to just come give me a big hug, and then maybe, 
maybe I'll have a chance <laughs> of doing better. There is actually a big risk right now, but on the back of what you just said, but you're going to get a lot of articles. I know, I, I should never have said that. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me for Decisions Over Coffee. And all of you listeners out there, thank you so much. I'm Magdalena Smith, and I've been talking to Daniel Crosby, the Chief Behavioral Officer at Brinker Capital. So once again, Daniel, sincere thanks. And it's been really helpful and useful and interesting to hear your input. And Daniel, I hope that we will have you on here very soon again. Yeah, it would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. That is it for this episode of Decisions Over Coffee. Please do join me again next time.